Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 142. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we ask that you will be with us once again tonight as we draw close to you through the pages of your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the fellowship that we enjoy with one another as saints, as fellow citizens of this great kingdom of yours. We ask that uh, your name would be praised and blessed and magnified during this time, and that Yeshua, you would be lifted up with the words that we speak, with the actions that we perform we pray that you will continue to protect us and raise us up during these difficult times in which we live. Give us a voice. Give us hope. Give us um, a certainty that is beyond what we would, of course, expect from the headlines um, and from just things that are happening around us. We don't walk by sight, but we walk by faith. Walk by faith and not by sight, we're commanded. So help us to have our hope set on you anchored in what Messiah has done for us, knowing that he will return once again, and he will rescue us, and he will bring us unto himself, and establish his kingdom in righteousness. Um, continue to bless those who study along with us via either YouTube or um, iTunes podcasts or what other medium they're connecting to these teachings. I pray that you'll bless them and protect them where they're at, and raise us up, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatunval in Thornton, Colorado. That's the Harvest Congregation. You can join us in person and online. Go to our website at graftedin.com, like you can see on my screen right now, G-R-A-F-T-E-D-I-N.com. If you don't choose to join us in person, we do invite you out to um, our YouTube channel. Go to our website and you can click on the thumbnail that you can see on my screen right now. Five types of spiritual leaders. Pastor Mark's in his sermon series. He's going through the, that, that familiar passage about the five leaders. I think he started with prophets last week and now he's into evangelists this week. Hope you can join us either online or in person. I've got my own YouTube channel as well at tatesatorah.com. You can find me online at T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. You can join me, of course, 24-7 online. I'm not um, uh, ever closed there. I don't ever shut my website. Click on any of the links of the resources that you can see on your screen right now and avail yourself of all the resources that I make available for you for free. 
I've also got a YouTube channel. You can find me on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetsa Torah Ministries, all one word laid out there. And I'd be delighted if you browse around and check out all the videos that I produce on a Really, it's on a daily basis. Um, I know my thing says updated weekly, but I need to change that. Actually, I, I update, um, if you look at the little date stamps there, I, I send something up to YouTube just about every day, and I'm delighted to do so. And these are the live internet studies that do get recorded and uploaded to YouTube. Let me just tell you about some of the announcements uh, that we're looking at tonight. This is episode number 142. And the meeting date for all of our uh, live studies, if you'd like to meet us live, is uh, Monday nights, tonight, tonight, June 14th, 2021, um, USA date, that is. Um, but if you'd like to join us, we'd eat, we meet each Monday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So no matter where you're at in the world, set your time clock against that. Uh, time zone and you'll be able to meet with us. In the hour-long study we go through at least two segments, not counting all the other extra stuff like the prayer and the announcements and the um, uh, videos and the liturgy. Um, the first 30-minute segment is given over to Romans 14 Unplugged Feasts and Fast and Food. Oh my, we're in part 58 tonight. We're going to continue going through the excursus material with Tim Haig, uh, Tim Haig's Matthew commentary. Second segment, 30 minutes, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity, Paper 2, Yahweh and Yeshua, Part 75, and we're almost done with Paper 2. I think I've got one or two or maybe three weeks at the most left, and then we're ready to jump into Paper 3, where we'll deal with uh, the Holy Spirit and Trinity-related issues and things like that. And then there will be a YouTube video tonight on Psalm 1, 1 through 6. Are you the blessed man? Or are you, are you the blessed man? These are the Skype studies and some of the details that you will need. Obviously, you're going to need to get access to Skype somehow. The easiest way is if you're on a desktop or a laptop computer to simply click on the link that you see on my screen right now, the blue Skype link, and it will open up Skype in your web browser. No extra software needed, no login or membership ID needed. Your browser will do all the work. But if you're on a different device, then I think you'll have to do some extra work, either create a, the Skype account or uh, install Skype software, but all of that's free anyway. So uh, we hope you can join us during Skype for these live studies. We meet after the study, hang around, and chat with one another for uh, just a few minutes afterwards, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes, whatever we're in the mood for. And that's exclusive to Skype. So uh, if you'd like to interact and dialogue with me and the other students in the class, well, then um, this is the way to go. It's exclusive to Skype. And one last detail, while you're on my website, scroll down to the very bottom to that black section that you see on my screen where it's um, got some Hebrew writing down there. And take a look at the little yellow donate button. If if God is laying it on your heart to reach out to me and help me uh, financially, this would this is the way to do it. You can bless me by donating securely using PayPal, using either a bank account or a credit card that's linked um, at the PayPal, or you don't even have to link them, but you just utilize that as your resource. And you can send the funds to me pay, uh, securely, and I can receive them here. And that'll help me out greatly as this time where I'm still looking for employment out here in South Korea. Uh, but um, the Lord is the one who's increasing 
uh, all of the, the monies that are coming in. So he is the one that's blessed and he's the one that receives the credit. And aren't we blessed to be partners with him and to share in that together? You blessing me, me blessing you, and let's just bless the Lord together. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right. Let's jump right into Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. We're not actually in the study. As I mentioned, this is a study that is available on my website at tatesatora.com. And um, we're working our way through the study. We're actually in the section known as the Introduction, Background, and Historical Audience. And we're working our way towards the... Um, the conclusion, let me just scroll down to it and so you can see what I'm talking about. We're working our way towards the conclusions. We'll actually get there in about probably two weeks, I think. I think we're, we're just about done with Tim Haig. Um, but what we're doing right now is we're working our way through um, uh, this excursus material with Tim Haig. And um, uh, we finished last week, uh, I think it was th his thirdly. No, I think we finished, uh, yeah, it was thirdly. And we 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 were looking at this idea that um, the gospel is rooted in this idea of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. These are phrases that we find in the gospels themselves, but they're also rooted in the theology of the Tanakh. The king has a kingdom, and the kingdom is made up of subjects, right? Loyal to the king, they should be. So within this uh, picture that we're painting, this is supplemental material to help us appreciate our Roman study, Paul would have been versed in this concept of kingdom of heaven. And the reason it's impacting for us, the reason I'm bringing it out to us in our study, in our Roman study, is because the relevancy of the relationship of Jew and Gentile to one another in the city of Rome in the region that Paul was writing to in the, in the mid-50s of that time, Paul would have wanted them to have the same appreciation for the kingdom of God and it being composed of Jews and Gentiles together. Remember, you have to work from this existing idea that in Paul's day, number one, the church and the synagogue had not split from one another yet like they are today. Today, Christianity and Judaism are two separate religions that are essentially uh, opposed to one another in many different ways. But in Paul's day, they weren't that way. They were still joined together. Christianity was a subset, was a sect of Judaism, was an offshoot, a daughter of Judaism as its mother. So that's important to realize. Also, historically speaking, Jews and Gentiles had their socio-religious differences when it came to understanding who was in the community, who was a member of the group, who was rightfully, who had the rightful place to call, address God as king. And since the historic Judaisms came along first, and they had the, the spot of, of um, preeminence at the time when Paul was writing, then they were of the impression that, that the kingdom was basically composed and comprised of Jewish-only members. And so from their limited nationalistic perspective, everything funneled through the lens of the identity known as Judaism. And therefore, if you were outside of that identity, if you weren't born with it, then you had to contend there first. That was the that was the entryway to the kingdom from their perspective. They were micromanaging um, membership into Israel 
through a policy known as conversion. And so essentially, this meant Jews had to change their status from Gentile to Jew and take on uh, commandment keeping if they were to be considered as righteous in the, sight, in the sight of God. Of course, Paul, who had his eyes opened by Yeshua, realized that that program is wrong-headed. The kingdom is not composed of Jews only. In fact, the Abrahamic family, from which the kingdom draws its, its analogy as well, the Abrahamic family was a promise given to Abraham from God way back in Genesis, and it was composed of not just uh, native-born sons of Jacob, right, Israel, but God promised that through you, Papa Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So for Paul, it was very, very, very foundational. I stress that over and over again. It was foundational that the Gentiles be allowed into the kingdom of God, via faith in Messiah and as Gentiles. The nation of Israel is a bouquet of those from the nations outside of Israel along with those who were within Israel. The Abrahamic family is not made up of native-born sons of Jacob only. It is made up of those who have been grafted into Abraham's family or adopted into Abraham's family via faith in Messiah. And so actually... It's important for us to understand this idea of kingdom of God as it impacts our Roman study. So that's where we're looking at today. It's also important for us to understand that uh, faith in Messiah is what gets you into the eternal family of God, the eternal kingdom of God. The visible kingdom of God as it's represented by the uh, people of Israel on earth is just that. It's an earthly representation that at the end of the day, if you don't place your trusting faith in Messiah, the true king of the kingdom, then one day your kingdom membership will expire at death. And so that's something Paul would need to challenge the Jewish people with along those lines as well. You've got to place your faith in the true king who is Messiah, whom God the king has established in his kingdom if you want to stay in this kingdom into eternity, into perpetuity. So with that as our background, let's look at uh, Tim Haig's Fourthly statement. This is taken from his Matthew commentary, as I mentioned earlier. But let me back up one little, uh, one section in uh, from his thirdly and just push us into number four. So last week, go back and listen to episode number 141. Last week, Tim says, All too often in our day, the gospel is truncated, that is, shortened or reduced to include only the message of forgiveness without mention of what characterizes the lives of true citizens of the kingdom. Such a synthetic gospel fails to produce members of the kingdom because it's not the message of the king. Rather, this anemic gospel has resulted in the establishment of man-made kingdoms where the rule of Messiah is hardly evident or is entirely eclipsed in the bright lights of Hollywood Christianity. And with that, we can now turn to fourthly. Let's continue. And as I mentioned, we'll go this week and then I believe I can finish it next week, and then after that we'll turn back to my Romans commentary. Fourthly, Tim Hick says, the fact that the gospel is kingdom-centered is a source of great confidence for us as kingdom members, both you and I as kingdom participants, particularly those who are members of the eternal aspect. As I read through the Bible, there's this um, kind of a, um, what would I call it, a... Um, 
a uh, there's a word I'm forgetting, but it's it's um, a, a dual aspect to many parts of the Bible, a, um, a kind of a by a by something. I don't want to say bilateral, but uh, um, there's the kingdom as it's represented here on earth. Of course, we have earthly kingdoms that kind of mirror what we're talking about, right? Right, all throughout history, we had kings and kingdoms established. That's nothing new. But what we're talking about is when God established Israel as a nation, the motif that He worked through was the um, theme of a king and a kingdom. God was the righteous king, and Israel on earth represented the visible people of the kingdom. Whether or not they believed in Messiah wasn't the primary issue at the time. Um, I mean, well, it was. It's it's always been there. But the the point I'm trying Trying to draw uh, to your uh, uh, attention is that there um, there's always been a visible representation of the kingdom, and this visible representation doesn't require that you believe in Jesus as Messiah to be a member. Thus, if you're a native-born son of Jacob, then you were automatically um, brought into some relationship with the king and the kingdom based on God's promises to Abraham's offspring, his natural offspring. So, when we're talking about the king and the kingdom, the promises that Israel read about in the Tanakh, and that they should read about if they would read the rest of their Bible, namely the Apostolic Scriptures, is the idea that God can be trusted. He is a king who is going to establish his kingdom in righteousness, regardless of what the situation looks like around you. So Israel, don't worry. Yes, you're going to have your ups and downs. Yes, you're going to have your defeats and your victories as you struggle and wrestle through the promises that God has made with you and with your forefathers. And as you learn to obey and disobey, right? God's going to establish his righteousness through you someday. So don't worry, have trust in God. Well, Tim Hegg reminds us of this this fact. The king is the one who establishes his kingdom, and it is therefore an inevitability. Don't worry as uh, nations rise and fall, as we're going to see in my um, Shema study when we talk about this idea of God being the judge. We're going to find that he is the one who judges the nations, and he is the one who establishes kingdoms, and he is the one who raises people up, and he is the one that tears people down. He is in control. Don't worry about what the outcome looks like. You know, you have governments are going to swap out here and there. Leaders are going to um, disappear overnight. And new leaders are going to be brought into, in, into their place, right? I'm reminded of what's taking place in Israel right now, today, right? Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Netanyahu has been ousted. And now we've got Naftali. Uh, I can't remember his last name, but he's the one who's been brought into power now. Well, wow, 12 years of of, of uh, rulership under Bibi Netanyahu now suddenly you know, out the door. Of course, he's not gone. He's going to stay in, in, in government and continue to influence people in whatever way he can. But he's not the prime minister anymore. So this is just an example of God allowing the leaders to come and to go, right? Wow, who'd have thought that, that Netanyahu would be out and a new leader would be in Israel? Right, okay, so we'll see what happens. But God is the one who's in control of all of that. So don't worry. Don't worry. Pray for your leaders. Let's continue with Tim Haig. This is portrayed, the idea of God establishing his kingdom, it's portrayed in the kingdom parables of Matthew 13, where what appears to be something insignificant or small, right, we've got the mustard seed or the pinch of leaven, this small thing in the parable, eventually grows large and encompasses the whole. So don't worry. It looks small now. It looks insignificant now. 
right? If you look on the world stage, if you place Israel within the perspective of the scope of the size and the magnitude of the other kings and kingdoms around her, the other nations and rulers, Israel is a very small fish in a very big ocean of nations and kings and rulers. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, numerically speaking, she doesn't have a lot of people. If you look at the Jews, uh, Jewish population worldwide, if we were to say that that represents Israel, even though it really truly doesn't, but if we were to just Im uh, imagine that, that it does, then we would still have to agree that there aren't that many Jewish people in the world today. So how is it that something so small, so tiny and insignificant can eventually grow to be this great kingdom that God is going to establish on the earth one day and set his King Messiah to rule from that kingdom, right? We just can't have to trust that God knows what he's doing. Uh, what did Yeshua say? He said, quote, I will build my kahilah, or ekklesia in the Greek. The kahilah is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek ekklesia, uh, from which we get the uh, English word either assembly or church, right? I will build my church. What is he proclaiming? What is Yeshua saying? He's proclaiming that he is the one who will establish his kingdom. He is the one that will build it. God, his father, has given him the authority to establish this kingdom. And right now, predominantly, it's within the, it's within the hearts of his kingdom members, right? We don't see it here on earth the way we should see it, the way we would read about it in the prophets or the way we would would anticipate uh, the Messiah ruling from earth. It's not here yet in that way, but it is established within us as within those of us who are true believers, those who have um, uh, uh, named Yeshua as our Lord and Savior, those of us who recognize that he is the king. We have this kingdom inside of us. The important part that Paul would need to us to relate to his Romans audience as bears relevance to the study is that Jesus is the true king and if you Gentiles have placed your faith in him then you are members of this invisible kingdom. But don't forget that on earth, I'm Paul talking, that here on earth, God has already established his visible representation of this kingdom, albeit with its deficiencies, right? Um, through Israel, the nation and the people of Israel are the visible representation of what God means by kingdom as well. And so don't discount Israel. Don't write her out of the program, even though she lar largely is... Uh, operating in blindness and in um, disbelief of the King Messiah. She doesn't accept him yet. Nevertheless, God is going to bring his promises to pass through her. And what I need you to do, I'm still Paul speaking to the Gentiles, the believers, the brothers. What I need you to do is to continue to build bridges of relationships with them. And you need to stay connected to them. And you need to dialogue with them about the gospel, about the gospel of the kingdom, about the good news that Jesus is the king, that Messiah Yeshua is their Messiah, that the, the savior of the Gentiles is in fact the savior of the Jews as well. You Gentiles don't need to separate yourselves, become proud and haughty and, and high-minded as if you don't need the Jewish community just because they uh, are in stumbling mode, because they don't believe in Jesus yet. They are the weak in faith. No, what you Gentiles need to do as grafted in members into this family, as um, adoptees into this family, as grafted in uh, uh, tree branches into this uh, family tree, 
You need to reach out in love and mercy just like God reached out through the Jewish people and had mercy on you. Now you too need to turn around and have mercy on them. Yeshua is building his kingdom, his assembly, his people, his kihilah, his ecclesia, his church. Matthew 16, 18. He's proclaiming that he is the one who will establish this kingdom of Jews and Gentiles. Ultimately, if you're not found in him, at the end of the day, you're not going to stay in the kingdom, even at the earthly level, right? Israel, you need to get your act together. You're on borrowed time. You've only got so much time to accept the true king, Messiah, into your hearts. Because if not, on Judgment Day, we're going to learn this in my Shema study, you're going to find that he's going to judge between the sheep and the goats, and you're not going to make it in the kingdom. You're not going to make it. All right, let's keep reading. These are harsh words unless you can receive them with your spirit. While he graciously assigns to his disciples the task of proclaiming the gospel, right? Jesus has given this, this commission to us. The success of its message is in his hands, not ours. Yes, like Whiteheart said, the Christian uh, rock group from so long ago, from my era, from like uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, we are his hands, we are his feet, we are his people. It is Whiteheart, the CCM, Christian con Contemporary Christian um, uh, Music Group. But... We are his uh, Talmudim. We are his instruments. We are partners with him in building up this kingdom. But the success of it is in the hands of the king. Because it is his power in us that brings about the change of a heart that's necessary to become genuine and lasting kingdom members. You understand what I'm saying? We share the gospel with those around us. But it is the Holy Spirit in us, the spirit of the Messiah within us, that actually brings about the membership into the kingdom as that person accepts the gospel message. The Father, Tim Hague continues, is the one who draws the elect into the fold. The Spirit is the one who opens the eyes and ears and plants the seeds of faith in the hearts to receive the good news. Yeshua is the one who secures the success of his redeeming sacrifice through his high priestly intersection, uh, intercession. Notice the interaction of the three persons of the Trinity at work. The Father drawing the elect into the fold. The Spirit opening the eyes and ears and planting the seeds of faith into the hearts. Yeshua, the one who actually hung on the cross and let his lifeblood drain out of him as the eternal sacrifice for all those who wish to be part of this great and merciful kingdom of God. So notice, each person of the Godhead had a role to play and still has a role to play. Uh, Tim Hake continues, The kingdom is already established and its success and victory over all other rulers and kingdoms is secure. This is something we can bank on. The promises of God are sure. God knows the end from the beginning. He's already seen the future. And if you read the Bible carefully in some places, he's even written the future in advance. Prophetically speaking, God knows that his kingdom is going to come. It will be established on earth even as it now exists within our hearts. The Messiah's kingdom will not fail. When Yeshua said, I will build my kingdom, I will build my uh, church, I will establish my ecclesia, it's a sure thing. It's not something Yeshua's crossing his fingers, knocking on wood, tossing salt over his shoulder, and wishing and hoping that it's going to come to pass. 
No, it's a promise and it's going to happen. God has already promised it's going to happen. To make continues, Yeshua demonstrated this uh, success of his victory in his kingdom over other rulers. He demonstrated the reality of his kingdom among Jews and Gentiles by casting out demons right here on earth. Matthew 12, 28. Showing, watch this, that no obstacle can stand in the way of of his ultimate and final reign as God's righteous and rightful king. Nothing can thwart his father's kingdom from being established, and nothing can stop it. No demon in hell, no devil can thwart the plans of God. Amen? That's a good place to say amen. So we have nothing to fear. The king will establish his kingdom. Notice, by the way, the equivocation on the word king that I keep purposefully using the ambiguity when I talk about the king and the kingdom. Am I talking about God the king or am I talking about Yeshua the king? And the answer is yes. Notice the ambiguity. Notice the the equivocation. It's done on purpose. It's because the theme in the Bible is that God is the righteous king, but that Messiah is his king that he will establish in his kingdom. Let's finish up with Tim Haig tonight and then we'll turn to the, the other half of our study. Therefore, Tim Hague says, as his servants and disciples, we may proclaim the message of the kingdom without fear, for the gospel is itself the power resulting in salvation to all who believe. There's Romans, there's Paul again, Romans 1.16. The gospel results in salvation to all who believe, not just Jews. That's what Paul establishes in that part of Romans. It's not just Jews who can and will be saved. It is all who place their faith in Messiah, the true king, that can be members of this kingdom. And for it is the good pleasure of the Father to use the message of the gospel to accomplish his sovereign design in establishing his kingdom upon the earth. Omain? Omain. And that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast, Fast, and Food, Oh My. Let's turn now to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And let's just jump right into the study. We've got this table that Karm has created for us, and we're working our way through all of the labels. And if you notice, guess what? We have reached the end of the table. That means this week we'll look through these scriptures, Next week, we'll read the, the uh, concluding statement there at the bottom. Um, all right, there. Let me go like that. At the bottom of the screen. And then the week after that, uh, so next week, we'll do a um, kind of an overview of part two and see what we uh, looked at. And then um, the week after that, we'll start into exploring the Shema paper three, who or what is the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, that'll be good. right? In fact, right now, if you look, it says commentary forthcoming. So purposely, I just don't have it available there for us. It's, 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 uh, it's waiting. I'll push it out to the internet um, uh, when I'm ready to upload it. Okay, but let's look tonight at the fact that God judges and the Son judges, and actually, even though Karm doesn't have a place for the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to go on so far as to say that the Holy Spirit judges, but I will say that he plays a part in judgment. Not that he's the judge, but he helps um, the Father and the Son bring about judgment uh, in the kingdom and things like that. So let's just look at this. Strap yourselves in because this is going to be a longer uh, version of the Shema study. There's, I've got uh, almost 
probably 20 verses that I need to look at. And so let me jump over to my little cheat sheet here, my little notes that I have. Uh, Shema study episode number 142. We're going to look at Hashem as judge, God as the judge. And we're going to go through various passages, Genesis, Psalm, uh, Psalms, the book of John, the book of Romans, the book of Acts. These are places where God is the judge. And then we'll turn to Yeshua as judge. We'll look at this in Matthew, in John, in Acts, in 2 Corinthians, and the book of Jude. And then finally, we'll show how the, the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, is involved in judgment, although he himself is not the one who's judging. Um, and we'll see that in John 16. So, let's jump into the first passage. Karm actually has John 8.50 under the Father column. And they have John 5, 22 to 30 under the sun column. But what I like to do is typically go backwards into the Tanakh and pull our theology starting from the Tanakh as our antecedent theology, right? That which came before the New Testament and go there. So let's turn first to, um, I just realized I think I got a typo there. I don't think that's supposed to say judgment. Yeah, that's better. Um, let's turn first to Genesis 18:25 and look at... God as the judge. So we have the story that most of you are familiar with, Abraham dialoguing with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Genesis 18.25, right there, God says to, I'm sorry, Abraham says to God, far be it from you to do such a thing about destroying everybody, right there in this dialogue about um, God told Abraham, get out of the way, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah before their wicked, uh, because of their wickedness. And Abraham starts pleading to God about the righteous nature of God. And listen what, what Abraham says to God. Far be it from you to do such a thing, that is to say, destroy the righteous with the wicked. To put the righteous to death with the wicked. God, this isn't your character. I know you. And this is not what you would do. So that the righteous fare as the wicked. Are the two of them equal? Abraham is reasoning with God based on the character of God. Look what Abraham says. For I'm sorry, far be from you that far be be that from you, right? Judging and condemning. Shall not the judge of all the earth do us right? The judge of all the earth. God is what Abraham says, the judge of all the earth. The judge of all the earth. Let's pull this up. He's the in Hebrew. Right there, he's Hashofet Kol Haaretz. God is the judge. Now, we're talking tonight in Shema about how we can see God as judge, Yeshua as judge, and the way the Holy Spirit participates in bringing about judgment, although he himself is not the judge. But primarily, it's Yahweh and Yeshua, right? That's what, the, that's what this is part two. And we see how there's this overlapping of God as judge and Yeshua as judge. So, Abraham pleads to God because God is the judge of all the earth, the shofate kol haaretz. If we were to click on this Hebrew word uh, shofate, we would end up with um, a Strong's number that we're going to look at here in a moment. So let's turn to the Septuagint. This is going to help us look at the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, right here on my screen, I've got a modified version of the KJV. And then right under that, I've got the Hebrew from the Masoretic text again, and we can see God listed right here as the um, the uh, the Shofet Kol Haaretz, the God of all the ju of, of all the earth, the Judge of all the earth. Shaphat is the root word for uh, Judge here, 
that we're using in the Hebrew. If we were to turn to the Greek, so we have God as the judge of all the earth, we would end up with this phrase right here in the Greek, ha krinon pasentein gain, the judge of all the earth. And the root word that we're interested in primarily is this word that's in red that you can see my on my screen highlighted, krinon. Krinon is the Greek version of the Hebrew word shafat. That's where we get the word judge. If I were to click on that link, this particular tool would open this resource. Krinon, the word judge, is rooted in this word krino, the, the, the verb which means to judge. And we can see that if we just scroll through some of these meanings, to judge, to think, to consider, to look upon, to act as a judge over, to act as a judge in the interest of, to judge, to decide, a call to court, condemn, hand over for punishment, to vindicate, to absolve, exonerate. You get the idea. It's it's basically the way we were, use the word judge. And it's got a range of meaning. It can mean judgment as in a court setting where a verdict is passed, uh, either for or against uh, any particular party, so that they're either um, acquitted or they're condemned, right? They're And they're sent off for punishment. Or we can use the word judge in the lighter sense where we make a determination, where we make a decision, uh, come to a conclusion about some idea. We decide on something, right? Uh, let's see, Ariel judged whether he should eat cornflakes or uh, um, uh, Captain Crunch for breakfast, breakfast, right? Okay, I judged, I decided which one of these two cereals I should eat. Of course, the obvious answer is cornflakes, right? Captain Crunch is going to rot your teeth, all that sugar in there. Okay, so um, you get the idea. So judge is a very kind of well-rounded word, very all-general-purpose word, but when we're talking about God and the context of mankind then often what we're looking at is a type of final judgment at the end of time when it comes to man. And is man going to go into eternity and spend his eternity with God? Or is he going to be judged and spend eternity away from God? We're talking about eternal judgment. And God is the one who's going to decide your eternity, whether you spend eternity with him or away from him. How will you fare? God is the judge of the earth. He's the righteous judge. So that's the framework from the study that we're going to be looking at. Now, let's turn to our next passage, Psalm 9, verses 4 through 8. The Tanakh, the, the uh, Old Testament, establishes over and over in several places that God is the judge. Look at Psalm 9, starting in verse 4. The psalmist says, For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. And the uh, root word for judgment there is uh, shofate right here. Strong's number um, 8199. And this again is the same root word that translates over as um, krinon uh, or judge or something like that in the Greek. Uh, the psalmist continues in verse 5, You have rebuked the nations. Notice the scope of God's righteous judgment. It's not just with Israel, but it is with the nations. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. God can render judgment over all the earth because he is the creator, something we also learned in our Shema study. The psalmist continues in verse 6. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. 
Why? Why has this happened? Because the Lord sits in throne forever. He has established his throne for justice. There's that kingdom theme all over again that we learned in our Romans study. God is the righteous king, and he establishes his king his kingdom here on the earth, ultimately, and he establishes his righteous king. Notice in verse 8, uh, the psalmist con- concludes, He, God, judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. What's the scope of God's judgment? It's over all the nations. It's over all the peoples. It's over all the world. It's not just over Israel. That's the, the, the point I'm trying to bring out as we look at these verses where God is established as the judge of all peoples, as a judge over all the earth. And rightfully so, because he is the one true God. He's the only righteous God, the only righteous judge. And therefore, he's the only one who created everyone and has the right to judge everyone. Uh, later, Further on down in the psalm, in verse uh, 15 and 16, the psalmist continues. Again, the scope of God's judgment is not just against Israel, his people, but ultimately it's against all the earth. Look what the psalmist says. The nations have sunk in the pit that they've made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. Who? The nations, not just Israel. Yes, Israel gets punished for her wrongdoings that she commits against her uh, husband, um, Hashem. But ultimately, it is the nations that receive this judgment. Look at verse 16. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hagion, Selah. There again. We see God as the righteous judge over all the earth, not just over his people Israel, but ultimately over all peoples. Oh, Maine? Oh, Maine. Let's continue looking at God as the righteous judge. Let's turn to the New Testament. There's so many other passages in the Apostolic Scriptures that I can look at. I'm sorry, in the Tanakh that I can look at, but for brevity's sake, we'll just jump right into the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures. Let's turn to John 8, 15. This is the one that shows up in Karm's chart. John says... Speaking the words of Yeshua, speaking of his father, Yeshua says, "You." Ju-, I'm sorry, first of all, he's speaking to these uh, religious rulers within earshot, but notice he's going to talk about the father. He says, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. This is Yeshua talking to the religious leaders who were just ready to condemn the other woman who's caught in adultery in this passage. I believe that's the, uh, the context. Um, yeah. Yeah, the woman right there in verse 10. Uh, and in verse 11, uh, Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. So it's within that context that Yeshua uh, 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 challenges these religious r- rulers. You judge according to by your eyes, according to the flesh, according to what's in front of you. You don't have a righteous heart. I judge no one according to that standard. But then notice what Yeshua says. He starts using some very peculiar wording like he often does when he's speaking to uh, the religious leaders, right? He's always challenging them, pushing them to the, to the, to the very next level where they can um, uh, understand what he's trying to say. He says in verse 16, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, watch this, but I am the Father who sent me. So this is a little bit of an overlap verse. It is the Father who's judging, but it's Yeshua who's now saying, you know what? My judgment is true if I decide it. It's because I and the Father who sent me are both able to judge. 
it's not me alone who would be judging, but it's the Father in me who would be the one that's judging. So this is where he's going to start them out. He's going to challenge them. Of course, at the end of the passage, which I've gotten my little reference here, at verse 49-50, so let me drop down there so we can see what he, his, uh, one of his uh, conclusions are. Sorry about that. He says, Jesus answered, all right, they, 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 this is a very, really interesting passage, John 8. This should be made into a movie. I wish Hollywood would do it. He has this long interaction with these religious leaders, and they're just going back and forth. Or, I mean, um, they're challenging one another, and Yeshua is rebuking them for their ignorance on true spiritual matters. And they finally conclude that he's out of his mind. He's demon-possessed. That's the only way he'd be coming to the logical deductions that he's coming to. What does Yeshua say to them in verse 49? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And then look what he says in verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Who's Yeshua talking about? He's talking about his father, of course. His father in heaven is the judge. Where would Yeshua get this theology? Did he make it up on his own? No. He got it from the Tanakh. He got it from his father. Right? He knew who the judge was. He read the book of Psalms just like we looked at it earlier. God is the righteous judge of over all, over all the earth, especially over sheep Israel, but over all the earth. God is the judge. Let's keep looking. Let's turn to the book of uh, Romans. Before we do that there, let me just uh, again, again make sure you guys are understanding. Let's look at this word judge in John 8, 50. Um, this is the uh, word krinon over here on the right side of the page. Krinon is the Greek Strong's number 2919. If I were to click on that link right there, I would end up with this uh, page here. Krinon, the noun judge, is rooted in the verb krino, Strong's number 2919, which is the word judge. Strong's defines it as judge or decide, whether in a law court or privately, something to that effect. That helps word studies, talks about separating and distinguishing, uh, making judgment either positive or negative, right? Render a verdict. So God is the one who at the end of days, at, on judgment day, what, what Judaism calls Yom Hadin, he's going to render a final verdict among all mankind. Are you judged worthy to be in my kingdom? God the king is going to say. Or are you judged unworthy. Are you in or are you out? And this is going to be decided based on the standard that the judge sets up. What is that standard? It's established in his righteous teachings, the the, the uh, writings of the king, right? the teachings of the king that we learned about a few weeks back. It's the Torah itself that establishes the righteous standard, and that standard d dictates that faith in the righteous king Messiah is what grants you entry into the kingdom or excludes you from the kingdom, right? Are you in or are you out? This is a good time for me to ask you as you're watching this uh, YouTube video, as you're listening to these um, uh, iTunes podcasts, these MP3 studies, is the king in your heart? Have you made a decision to accept the king into your heart? I ask you to consider 
this message of the king, the gospel, the good news. Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Paul's going to tell us in Romans that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's with the heart that man believes unto righteousness, and it's with the mouth that you confess unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the good news that we can accept that the king extends to us as members, as citizens of planet Earth, whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. Won't you accept the king today? Won't you accept the king into your heart so that you can be found in his kingdom? I pray that you do. Let's continue in our study. Let's look at Matthew 25 as we turn... Um, do we want to turn to Yeshua has judged just yet? No, I think I've got a... a um, I think I've got one more, I think I should have an Acts uh, passage. Give me a second here. I've got my tabs out of order. Let's move this tab. I think this is the tab that I want to look at. We looked at Matthew. Nope. We want to go like that. All right, let's look at Acts 10 for a split second. We're still looking at God as judge. Acts 10, verse 42. The writer, Luke, writes this. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. No, this is a Yeshua. I guess my little notes there were, were not correct. Okay, so this is this is actually Yeshua's, uh, the one who's um, being the judge. Let's move that back over to Acts. I apologize about that. Yeah. All right, so let's turn, let's begin looking at um, the son as uh, uh, as the, um, uh, the judge as well. So, we're going to transition now. God is judge in the Tanakh. But now, what we're going to find is that the gospel establishes that Yeshua carries this role as judge as well. In this overlap of roles, does it definitely establish him as God just because he's judge as well? Well, not automatically. I don't think so. Could we make, could, you know, in other words, does this logic uh um, automatically uh, preclude that Jesus is God just because God is spoken of as judge in the Bible and Jesus is spoken of as, God, as judge in other places. Not necessarily because we could have God the Father handing judgment over to the Son on his behalf and it's still the authority that comes from God vested in Yeshua to wear this robe of judgment and therefore to judge all men and we could say that Yeshua is judge but at but in reality, it's the it's the um, authority that God the Father has granted him. So we could still say that and not necessarily have to say that Jesus is God in that particular argument. I understand that, and I actually agree with that logic. I think that's good. However, however, by the same token, we could understand that because a judge has to be righteous in his judgment, and the only one who's fully righteous enough to judge all of mankind, indeed all of the nations in Israel as well, is God, because of the quality that it requires to be the only one true righteous judge, namely God, then for God the Father to confer this quality upon his Son must mean that the Son shares that righteous quality in its fullness, and thus the Trinity comes back on the table. In the, in the subject as well, in the, in the topic of discussion. Again, 
Yeshua must possess this righteous quality. He must be sinless in the in the fact that he alone can render a verdict. Otherwise, he's he can't stand in judgment over a sinner if he himself also is guilty of the transgressions that he's pronouncing judgment against. You understand what I mean? He's a righteous judge, but he's righteous in that he's sinless. He shares the same qualities as his father. And thus, now we can see that he is true deity. Look at Matthew 25. Yeshua describing the Son of Man. Keep in mind that this Son of Man imagery is rooted in the Tanakh, in the book of Daniel, and in other passages that we're going to reference here in a moment. But let's look at Matthew 25, 31 and 32. Yeshua says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Aha, we've got this king sitting on a throne. Verse 32, before him will be gathered who? Israel only. Uh uh uh. Read it again. Before him will be gathered all the nations. This king, this righteous one, this ruler from the ancient of days, he will be who comes and approaches the ancient of days, the son of man. He will, watch this, separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. What's he doing? He's rendering judgment. He's rendering judgment. He is separating people. I believe that this is the sheep and goats judgment that takes place just immediately prior to the establishment of the thousand-year millennial kingdom here on earth, meaning it's after the tribulation, but it's before the uh, millennium. So I believe that's when the time place is for this prophetic event. And this determines who gets in and who who doesn't allow, uh, who God um, um refuses to allow to go into his kingdom uh, for the thousand-year reign. Of course, there'll be people that are born in that time period as well, but that's a different discussion. Uh, but for now, it's safe to say that God um, allows his righteous king, King Messiah, to separate all the nations one from another. God allows this judgment. Now, God is the judge that we read about in the Tanakh, but now we see, here's an example, of God um, conferring this judgment to the Son, to his righteous king. This isn't the only place we're going to see it, but this is our starting place. Let's turn now to um, uh, the book of Romans. I suppose I should have had Acts in there first, but no, yeah, Acts, because Acts comes before Romans. I'm out of order with my tab, so just forgive me. Uh, this is this is Paul speaking, and Paul has also come to this understanding through the Spirit of Messiah opening his eyes that when when Paul read through his Tanakh, he understood that God is judge, God is the righteous judge, and yet at the same time, watch this. What does Paul say in Romans two? We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It is the judgment of God, Paul says. But let's keep reading. Um, in verse. Uh, 5, Paul says, speaking to these unregenerate men, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, right? God's the one who's judging here. But watch this as we work our way down into the passage and get down to verse 16. I passed it. Paul says, let me back up to verse uh, 15. Nope, I don't need that. Let's just go to verse 16. Paul says, On a day, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. How? By Christ Jesus. So here we have it. God is the judge, and yet 
Messiah is the the um, the means by which God is going to judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It all falls on the truth of Messiah, and that's the way that God has established it. You don't make it into the kingdom of God by merely believing in the king exclusively. God has made the rules. The kingdom rules are in his hand. And he has established, God, that if you want to be a part of his kingdom someday, then you must reckon with his righteous king, his Messiah, Yeshua. Jesus is the object of the judgment, uh, or I should say the object of whether or not men are judged righteous or not. Yeshua is the uh, uh, measuring rod that God is going to use as to whether or not you belong in the kingdom. So um, make no mistake about it. One day, God will judge using his righteous judge, King Messiah himself. Let's continue. In Romans 14, Paul speaks about judgment as well. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? This is our Romans 14 passage. Speaking of Jews and Gentiles condemning and judging one another. Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Notice Paul establishes that it's God's judgment seat, the judgment seat of God. But if we continue working our way down through the passage, let me see, is this the passage? Uh, I, I think I had this one out of order. This one I should have had oh, when we're talking about the judge of God, uh, God being the judge. But notice he says, the judgment seat of God. So it is still this idea that it's God's judgment seat, but it's the King Messiah. Let me scroll back up to verse 10 there. But it's King Messiah who is the one that is uh, uh, judging in on, on behalf of his father. Sorry that I got some of these out of order. I apologize. But you guys are getting the idea. Let's continue through looking at Yeshua as the righteous judge. In John 5.22, this is in Karm's chart. In John 5.22, we're going to read through verse 30. John says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Who's speaking? Who's talking? Is John talking? No. This is actually the Son himself. Yeshua is explaining this to them. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Well, this is odd. Yeshua, haven't you read through the book of Psalms? Didn't you read through um, Genesis uh, like we looked at earlier? Don't you know that Paul's going to go on to write that it's the judgment seat of God that we're going to stand before? Why are you saying that God, that the Father judges no one? Are you understanding that it is the Father who is the judge, and it is the Father's judgment seat? But it's the Son who's been given this authority to judge on his Father's behalf. That's why Yeshua can say, God has given all judgment to the Son. Look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, this person, but has passed from death into life. Here we see the righteous standard. The righteous standard is Messiah. The righteous standard is the gospel message that comes from the Messiah's mouth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, who has been sent and who is the one sending? Do you believe God? Do you believe the one who was sent from God? Do you believe the words that are coming out of Yeshua's mouth? If you do, 
then you have not come into judgment. You've passed from death to life. Yeshua continues, truly, truly, I say to you, by the way, in the, he, in the Greek, this is amen, amen, right? Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Notice the judgment aspect of the Son of God calling out to those who are dead, both Jew and Gentile from all the nations, calling out. And those who have heard the Son of God's voice, those are the ones who will live. How can you hear the voice of the Son of God? You can listen to his voice today. Don't wait till Judgment Day when he calls on you and you don't recognize his voice. Why wouldn't you recognize it then? Because you don't recognize it today. But the same is true in the converse, in the reverse. If you listen and recognize his voice today, then on Judgment Day, you will recognize it once again. Yeshua continues, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Notice the sharing of responsibilities here. And he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority, watch this, to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Where do we hear that Son of Man passage? That all the way back in the book of Daniel. We'll look at that reference here shortly here. The Son of Man is the one who has the authority to execute judgment because the Father himself has given Yeshua the authority to execute judgment. Verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour's coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Verse 29, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, I believe this is uh, the same Matthew event where the resurrection is into the, um, uh, into the uh, uh, kingdom of God, the established thousand-year time period, uh, which precedes the um, eternal state. Um, but uh, the resurrection, I believe, here. I could be wrong. This could be the resurrection at the very end, the great white throne judgment. Um, but either way, it doesn't matter, even if there's some overlapping of the concepts there. The idea I'm trying to establish is that God the righteous king, God the righteous judge, has uh, um, um, conferred this judgment to the Son. And Yeshua is the one you're going to have to reckon with, whether it be the um, uh, the Bema Seat judgment, the great white throne judgment, the, sh the judgment of the sheep and goats, the separation. It doesn't matter. Matter. Yeshua is the one you're, one you're going to have to contend with. And then the last verse in the John passage here, verse 30, Yeshua says, I can do nothing on my own. I, as I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. Let's accelerate our study here. Now we're in the book of Acts where um, the Luke, Luke says, and he commanded us to preach the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So again, the same theme. God appointed Messiah as the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. Who is the judge? It is God. But who is God establishing and appointing to judge on his behalf, it's God's authority, right? What did Yeshua say uh, uh, in our previous passage? I don't do anything on my own. As I hear, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, naming namely the Father. So Yeshua is referencing this, this authority that comes from the Father to judge. And why can God confer this judgment um, Authority to Yeshua because he knows that his son is righteous and shares full deity just like he does. Um, 
later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, uh, starting in verse 31, uh, Luke again writes, Now Yeshua is being firmly conferred that he is the one that God has set up. And this is important for us as men because we need to understand that if we want to relate with God, if we want to be in the kingdom, if we want to make it in someday, then we have got to not just come to God like Israel claims today. We don't need Jesus. We've got God. We can come to God directly. No, you can't. No, you can't. You've never been able to go to God directly. Nowhere in the Bible can you just go to God directly, right? No one can see God and live. You can't approach God. There's always been a mediator. There's always been a go-between, whether on the earthly level with the priests or with Moshe or someone else. You must have someone on your behalf that will allow you to have an audience with God, whether it be on the earthly level when you're bringing sacrifice to the tabernacle or whether it be on judgment Yeshua is that mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, we read in the New Testament. But what does Luke say? Speaking of Yeshua, Yeshua, because he has fixed a day, speaking of God, a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, God the Father, how? By a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is Luke speaking about? He's speaking about God the Father establishing his son, Messiah, Yeshua, as the righteous judge. And the assurance, the surety that we as men know that Yeshua is the only true righteous judge is the exclusivity that Yeshua enjoys as the one who has been raised from the dead by the power of the Father and never suffered death again. All other earthly judges... All other earthly rulers have lived and they've died. And those which are still alive today are eventually going to die uh, given enough time. All men die. But Yeshua was raised from the dead never to die again. This is God's stamp of authority on Yeshua. This one who I, whom I raised from the dead, he is the one. He's the only one. He's the exclusive one. He's the one who's going to judge all men. Let's keep reading. 2 Corinthians, now we're going to move, um, we're, no, we'll continue to look at the, this judgment uh, from uh, uh, Yeshua. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear, Paul speaking, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now this is odd, the judgment seat of Christ. Let's go back over to Romans just for a split second on Romans uh, 14. Didn't Paul say in Romans 14.10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Why? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Ton bemati tu theu. The judgment seat of God. But now Paul's going to write in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we will all appear before the Bematas tu Christu. What's going on? What is this Bematas tu Christu? I thought it was the judgment seat of God. Now we've got the judgment seat of Christ. I think there's a variant in this, but we'll look at this a different day. I don't have time to look at it right now. There might be a variant where, where some passages actually do say the judgment seat of God 
but uh, if I'm correct, just from memory, but I don't have time to look at that right now. You can look that up on your own, and in your comments to this particular video, go ahead and look that up and tell me what you found, if there's a variant here that talks about the judgment seat of Christ versus the judgment seat of God. But the point is, in some manuscripts, if I'm correct, there is the variant here, the judgment seat of Christ. Right? Uh, that's what we're looking at. And then lastly, in our passages about um, Jesus being the judge, in Jude 1.14, uh, Jude writes, it was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. This reference harks back to um, passages out of the um, uh, Tanakh that we're going to look at here in a moment. But within the context, it can reference Yeshua because of the um, the uh, equivocation on the word Lord in the Apostolic Scriptures, referring not just to God as Lord, but Yeshua as Lord as well. Let's look at some of those passages real quick in our study here. Jude 1.14, notice on the right side of my page, God's judgment on the ungodly. If you look at the cross-references, we see Genesis 5.18 uh, referencing Enoch. Um, Genesis 5.21, Genesis 5.24, Enoch, right? He's the one that's writing, or the one that uh, uh, Jude referenced. But when we get to Deuteronomy, we see that the Lord came from Mount Sinai and dawned upon us from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and came with what? Myriads of holy ones, or saints, as it reads in some verses, with flaming fire at his right hand. So the reference that Jude gives us, of which Enoch... Um, uh, wrote that we don't have anymore. We don't have that book of Enoch. Well, we don't have it as uh, authoritative scripture. Uh, perhaps it's from Deuteronomy. Perhaps it's from Isaiah. Behold, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the inhabitants of the earth for the iniquity. Um, perhaps it's Daniel. The river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands attended him. And myriads upon myriads, right? This royal entourage that's traveling with God, the angels. And then we've got the Matthew passage. The Son of Man coming in his Father's glory with his angels. Wait a minute. It's the Son of Man with the angels. But in the Tanakh passages, it's God with the angels. Matthew 25, which we read earlier, the Son of Man comes with his glory and all the angels with him. Right? So, uh, 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So, that's why I said in the book of Jude, uh, the Lord coming, it could either be the Lord God, like we reference in the Tanakh, or it could be the Lord Yeshua. There's the equivocation, the ambiguity on the word Lord there, the dual uh, usage of the uh, Greek kurios uh, that carries over in the Apostolic Scriptures. And then lastly, in the book of John, we have a one single passage that I wanted to highlight, uh, John 16, that um, references the um, interaction of the Holy Spirit in this role of judgment. He's not really the judge, but look what uh, Paul writes, I'm sorry, look what John writes, starting in verse 8. Um, Yeshua speaking says, when he comes, who's the he? Who's the he? Go back and read the passage on your own. You'll figure out who it is. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and what? Judgment. Judgment. Concerning sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in me. Right? Remember it all? It, 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 you either stand or fall based on how you treat the son, how you contend with Yeshua. Concerning righteousness, verse 10, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, right? And then uh, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. And in case you hadn't figured out who the one is that's coming, 
Yeshua tells us in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, speaking of the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then I suppose I could throw in verse 13, verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the role of the Holy Spirit, he's not the judge, but he is taking what is Yeshua's, reminding us of what Yeshua has said, and he's declaring Yeshua's words to us. If God is the judge who has conferred righteous judgment to the Son, Messiah, then it makes sense that Yeshua is going to have the Holy Spirit remind us and confer these words to us as well. So that's the role that the Holy Spirit would play. And that's going to do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the liturgy real quick and bring our study to a close. We're in Jeremiah 31, and we started in verse 31 two weeks ago. We read 32 last week. Let's scroll down now and look at verse 33 in our study for our liturgy. The prophet says, For this is the covenant, speaking of this Brit Chadashah, this new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Such a wonderful promise. If you want to be in the kingdom with the king, and you want to walk according to his righteous edicts and statutes and, and commandments, then you must allow the king to put his laws within you. That's what God says. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. What does it say in the Hebrew over on the um, right side of the page there? The Hebrew says, Ki zot habrit asher echot et beit Yisrael achrei hayamim hahim neum Adonai natati et torati bakirbam va'al libam echtavena v'chaiti la. Let's turn now to the book of Galatians. We've been looking at Galatians chapter 3. We started in verse 10 two weeks ago. We read verse 11 last week. Now let's read verse 12. Paul, speaking about this righteous law of God and its relationship to us as believers and how the law points us to Messiah, but in and of itself it's powerless to save us, Paul says, this law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does the law, or does the commandment, does them, shall live by them. This is a wonderful passage as well. I wish I could go into detail. I point you to my Galatians commentary at TateSatora.com. Look under Galatians 3 and scroll down to my comments on verse 12. We looked at a little bit of this last week, uh, but go back and study some of that as well. It's a great passage to look up on your own. The law is not of faith. What does the Greek say over on the right side of the page? Paul says, Ha dinamas uk estin ek pistios all ha poiesas auta zesatai in autois. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now to the, um, to the short little uh, video. Um, and after we watch the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Welcome.
welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. I want to try something a little different this time around by providing a verse-by-verse midrash, a biblical exegesis, of one of my favorite passages in the Tanakh, Psalm chapter 1. Verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The person headed for destruction goes from walking in sinful counsel to standing in the way of sin to eventually sitting in the very chair of a sinful scoffer. This is like the frog in the pot that is gradually heated to a boiled death. As the righteous, we need to be ever aware of the progressive nature of the sin that permeates the world around us. Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man is not a man who willfully ignores God's word, his law, his Torah, viz, his Tanakh, plus the apostolic scriptures. On the contrary, God's word becomes his meditation day and night. Omain, Omain. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Like a healthy, fruit-bearing tree, the blessed man drinks in the nourishing water of God's Ruach HaKodesh as he remains planted in the Word of God, and, most importantly, in the very Word made flesh, Yeshua the Messiah. Indeed, this is true prosperity. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now comes the contrast. The blessed man and the wicked man are diametrically opposite one another. To be sure, it is the Lord himself who is the master gardener, the one who makes sure that the wicked are punished for their wickedness. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. God is a God of separation. He is a God of making a distinction between wickedness and righteousness. What we do today carries crucial consequences for us in the eternal plans of God. Make sure not to be among those who are identified as the sinners. And the last verse, verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The path of God's law, God's Torah, God's words from Genesis to Revelation, is the path of the righteous. And God knows this path because he is the author and designer of it. The wicked perishes because he does not know God's ways, but the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. And that'll do it for the short little video. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the opportunity to study with the students and to share and to grow with them as we work through the words of your love letter to us, the scriptures. They tell of Messiah and they tell of a way for us to be found in a right relationship with you. Lord, there is no other way to be found in a relationship with you other than through the name that you have given among all men that we're, wherewith we're, uh, we can uh, receive eternal salvation, which is his name is Jesus, his name is Yeshua. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have established your righteous king, and he will sit enthroned on your holy hill, and one day he will rule the nations in righteousness. 
Blessed be his kingdom, which is here now in our hearts, but is also to come one day and be established here on this earth. Thank you that you are bringing others into the kingdom every day. May we continue to partner with you in building up your kingdom and blessing the righteous king and establishing his kingdom. Help us to be a witness. Help us to be ambassadors. Help us to be not ashamed of this good news. Continue to protect us during these very dark and evil days that we live in. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the preeminence and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 